So um, tonight we're going to speak about uh, the fourth illusion. It's not my aging. <laughs> or at least it's not only my aging. <laughs> so um, tonight we're going to speak about uh, the fourth illusion. We've sort of taken apart the, the hall of mirrors here. And um, I want to uh, just briefly review uh, the first three uh, talks on this. Because tonight, uh, I think they each get progressively uh, more daring. It's uh, analogous to the Buddha's, Buddhism uh, taking off the boxing gloves. And each, each step, although each step is a hologram for all the other steps, each step, all the steps can be seen through uh, each step. We often don't look to its implications. We often will just stop and rest with, uh, with that particular illusion and deal with it um, somewhat abstractly, but try to get try to approach it. And so what were those illusions that we were, we've been talking about? Well, the first one is uh, uh, to hold the world in, uh, as permanent when in, in, it is inherently impermanent in transition. So, okay. I'll, I'll go along with that. Things change. <laughs> we have the a cosmic view and we have a personal view of all of that and we can even begin to see in our meditation how as we sit uh, there is uh, eternal motion in inside ourselves. And we look out and we can also see or at least perceive that everything is in some sense of birth or decay all around us. And so it begins to have an impact upon us. But I wonder if that impact carries over into the second truth, because the first, second truth can be seen through the first truth. And that is that if everything is in perpetual motion, then there's no place that we can stand and say, this is going to give me permanent comfort or pleasure. That this is going to be the resting place that I can be for the rest of my life and say, aha, this is it. But that's a little more daring, isn't it? Because that, that pulls the rug out from some of our basic strategies of life. That pulls the rug out from some of the, our, the basic motivation and why we get up in the morning. You know, to seek and to substantiate a comfortable life, a pleasant life, a life of, of, in which I can be happy never realizing that the state of happiness itself is in transition. Because when you apply that first illusion to wherever we stand, suddenly the, uh, the floor is pulled out from under it. Okay, so then, okay, so I can get a feeling for that. That shakes me a little bit. I don't uh, necessarily want to go into the third. Maybe I'll just rest on the second. But let's move into the third. Because the third was... Uh, even a little more subtle, and that is that time itself is an illusion. Not time by the clock, but internally, the way we carry the past and the future. 
the way we hold and fixate upon who we are in relationship to the past and our planning and our expectations and our anticipations of the future. And that as we begin to see that thought is the very basis for the, the holding of the past or the future and that if you look around here and now, that can't be seen. The past and future just can't be seen. That it's held within our thought and our thought is in transition is in change, is in movement. That thought isn't one thing thought about all the time. That it's, it's circular and in flux. And so that moves us. Then, then we become less substantial. When I don't have a past, it doesn't mean you haven't lived a past. It means that the past is not here. It's not here. And when I have no future in which I can project myself into, then things get a little flaky. It's a, it's a little transparent. It becomes, um, it becomes a little transparent. It's not as opaque anymore. Now we're going to take the next leap. And um, it wipes away any defenses that we have left. <laughs> And yet it's at the heart of the Buddha's teaching. So let us understand that this next step is the purpose and point to all meditation, really to all spiritual uh, insight. And that is taking what inherently lacks independent existence as independently existing. Oh, what does that mean? So when we sit down, and we sit down with a sense of stability in ourselves, when we sit down with a sense of personal identity, history, personhood, entity, the very process of looking inside begins to dissolve or erode the assurance of that fact. Why is that? Because there's nothing inside that can be fixed and located with a sense of self as being me or mine. Because everything is in transition. Everything is in movement. Where are you going to stand? Where are you going to put your identity, your label? This is Rodney. When there is a constant earthquake, a constant shaking going on inside. And it's because of that fact, actually, that we go on identity projects. You see, these illusions, according to the Buddha, are deliberate, as I have mentioned before. They're not just, um, they're not, they're a deliberate denial of the facts in order to pretend and make our way and create it an imaginative reality for ourselves. And if we take one of these facts and actually move with them to the depth in which they deserve, all facts flow into that one fact, and eventually the whole thing gets a little shaky. So when we sit down in meditation, ostensibly, some of us do it for calm or peace or tranquility or clarity of mind or to give us a little space to things. But what we are actually doing behind the scenes is looking at things the way they are. 
which means through the illusions of life to the actual perceptions of reality as they, as they are, which means that we begin to see everywhere we look, everywhere we take a stand, everywhere we perceive that there is movement and change occurring. I look at my thoughts, they're in transition. I look at my body, it's in a state of constant uh, evolution of birth and death, even within cells, and I can feel that as I tune into this. My emotions are not anything but cloud-like and uh, amorphous, and I can't say that this is the way I have felt and will feel the rest of my life, because that's absurd. Who here in this room has had one emotion their entire life? And yet we're desperately afraid of our emotions, because we fear that if we really allowed ourselves to feel them completely, they would overwhelm us. They may make us into the thing we fear the worst, which is rageful or pathological or something, and yet they're just things that are coming through us. They're just the internal nature of, how, of what we are. Nothing to be afraid of, and certainly the fear itself substantiates the thing far beyond its worth, its value. And so if we just look at things, if we just allow ourselves to touch up against them, the fear begins to break down. Now at the heart of this teaching of anatta, or anatta means uh, no self or emptiness, is that there is really nothing substantial. And the Buddha characterizes it by saying that he, he looks at the constituencies. He says, uh, what, we're not like a single thing, but let's say we're like a car. Okay, so what is a car? Is the car the motor? Is the car the body? Is the car the fuel that drives it? Is the car the steering wheel? Is the car the wheels? The car is the constituency of all those things. All those things together is carness. And so what the Buddha says, he says, okay, let me break you apart. Let, me, let us break ourselves apart. And he breaks us apart into what he calls five aggregates. The five aggregates. And those are body, sense of body, feel. And I'll just go through them very briefly because this is not what the main body of the talk is tonight. But I just want to... There's body and there are uh, perception. Perception is the quality of the mind that recognizes and, memor and, and memory. So it contains both recognition and memory. There are feelings, or Vedana feelings. That is, um, there arises uh, when there is contact a certain sense of pleasure or unpleasantness or neutrality with every experience. And that's, part of, that's one of the aggregates. And then there are mind states that arise. Mind states are the whole range of attitudes and feelings and emotions and reactions that we have within our mind. And then the final aggregate is the aggregate of consciousness itself. That is the quality that knows, that knows, not the quality of recognition, but the quality that knows the recognition is occurring, that knows on contact. And so these things together is what we call person in exactly the same way as those things together, all the body and the steering wheel and the engine and the fuel and all of that is what we call car. That there's nothing, there's no one of those things that you can take apart and say this represents and is 
the permanent entity that I have long established myself to be. So everything is codependently arising. It's really important to understand this because when you start seeing that everything is arising, it makes sense in terms of the first illusion that everything is in transition. It's not one person going through in a steady state through a hall in which everything is turning over. It's that everything is turning over, including the entity itself that's in perception. And that all of these aggregates, all of these qualities or constituents of our being are themselves changing and moving and are in constant flux and movement. And it's when we pull out of that, it's when we take a stance into that, when we uh, represent ourselves in something other than what we really are, that conflict is inevitable. How could, you not, how could we not have conflict when we pull out of change and establish some fixed point or reference? Because that fixed point or reference has no reality. Change is the reality. And therefore, there's going to be a rub. It has to be. The Buddha said it was like somebody who holds on to the move of a, a moving wheel of an ox cart, holds on tight to the, an ox cart wheel that's moving. Eventually, there's going to be a body underneath it. <laughs> he said, people who pretend not to see, and he doesn't mix words, he said, they're simply deranged. <laughs> you know, I think um, if you look at our own history, to make it more practical, you see that... Um, given whatever uh, history we had, that we had to bring forth some survival techniques during that time. We had to take a particular stance in relationship to what was going on, being small, not being empowered. We had to hold some way that we were. Uh, And as we began to perpetuate that stance in life, that posture in life, it took on a kind of identity. And oftentimes that identity uh, may have been uh, a negative identity. Uh, As I've said before, um, uh, I used to work with uh, juvenile offenders uh, who uh, were um, people who uh, were murderers and rapists, but they were just under 18. And they all had very strong, or many of them had very strong negative identities. That's just, they assumed that. And uh, there was a a sign I'll never forget. uh, It said that it's better to be wanted by the police than not wanted at all. And and, And it's that sense that it's better to form some identity than to not have any identity at all. And so even if it were negative, it served a purpose and allowed them to sort of solidify who they were around that sense of purpose and around that sense of posture. But, and often you can see people who have had long-standing, say, depressions, form their identity around a depressive personality, uh, and that they cultivate that posture and that stance with things. They bring forth that presence, bring forth that, that very... Um, response from other people through the posture that we hold. Or it could be somebody who just self-doubts a lot. I don't know very much, or I'm not as good as, or I'm not worthy. 
many of us carry that kind of identity with us, the unworthiness one, through the constant evaluation that we've had. And these are identity projects that we've gone on. Why have we taken on identity projects? It's to cover over the whole of being nothing. Because the worth whole, the, mo- the most devastating whole, the most torturous whole to feel is the feel that we are completely negated in life that we have no sense of worth or purpose, that we have no sense of presence, that we are essentially nothing. And why is that the worst? It's because there's some intuitive sense in ourselves that that is, in fact, what we are in in, in its very basic. But we don't project what the truth of that fact is. We project a sense of unworthiness as being nothing. To be nothing to us means to be completely worthless, which is not the sense of nothingness that, is this, that, that the truth is pointing towards. The tr- sense of nothingness that the truth is pointing towards is emptiness, is openness, is spontaneity, is creativity, is joy. But because we don't know or can't perceive what that must be like, we can only project our worst-case scenario on that, which is unworthiness, which is when somebody doesn't smile at you or say hello, you're negated. Oh, that must be what it's like to be nothing. It's the world slap. And so we cover over. We just get, that's the last thing that I'm going to allow myself to feel. And so we'll just perpetuate the illusion of somethingness, someoneness, to keep away from that hurt. So this is a big one. And this is, you know, this is like diving into an empty pool. This is a, a major, a major illusion that is at the root of all conflict. Because, it, again, if we don't fixate out, if we don't freeze positions, then where is there conflict? The Taoist story of a boat that collides with another boat. The second boat is full of people. And the boat that's full of people look over and see the boat that collided with them. They get very upset and angry until they see that the boat was empty and is just afloat. And then they say, oh, it's just an accident. But if there's somebody in that boat, suddenly there's contention and argument. So the point is, is to empty our boat. Every state of mind, without exception, is conditioned, is in change. Movement is inherent in the quality of our life, in the quality of life itself. It's an absolute condition. This is one thing to grasp intellectually. It is another thing to learn that. When we just grasp it intellectually, there can be enormous fear that arises. I'm out of here. Back to Christianity, back to Judaism, back to something. But I'm not, what do I want to do this for? I'm not going to be nothing. (laughs) It's like little orphan Annie. I don't want to be little orphan Annie. But to see it, but to actually experience it, which all of us have, even if we have set a single sitting in our life, You may not recognize it to be such, but the insights are beginning to dawn on us. 
the light is just not as bright as it might be in the f future, but it's bright enough so that it begins to show us some of the ways that we hide, some of the shadowed ways that we live, some of the illusions that we try to maintain. I find that fact to be very inspiring. And I find it in, in the oddest places sometimes. I f found this one, Martha Graham wrote this, and I particularly like that she's a choreographer and a, a dancer. And uh, if you, I mean, she puts, uh, puts the sense of self in it, but hear it in terms of just the transition and movement of life. It's really quite beautiful. She says, there is a vitality, a life force, an energy, a quickening that is translated as you into action. And because there is only you in this moment in all time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium, and it will be lost. The world will not have it, and it is not your, the, it will be lost, and the world will not have it. It is not your business to determine how good it is, nor how valuable, nor how it compares with other expressions. It is your business to keep it yours clearly and directly and to keep the channels open. That sense that, that we're all, that the uniqueness of change is bringing forth in this moment our particular personalities, our particular conglomeration, our particular constituency. It's not a depressing thing. It's the very heart of where creativity and spontaneity reside. And to free ourselves up so that we're actually living that change, so that we're actually feeling the momentum and, and the flux and the, and the potential of that allows for everything to be born and to die in that instant. And for that moment, brief moment of manifestation to be very unique and to be very unpretentious to be very raw, and yet to be, because of those very qualities, to be very powerful. So the sense of selflessness is not a discouraging quality to me. It's at the very, it's at the very fabric of hope. It is at the very movement of potentiality. I was uh, watching, um, uh, PBS is having a series on jazz. And uh, I, 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 I'm not a jazz uh, fan, but I love the extemporaneous quality of it. And they have uh, Wynton Marsalis as one of the narrators. Who, and you can just see his eyes light up you know, when he starts talking about it. Uh, because it's, 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 you can see the creation and the spontaneity you know, and how he's just, he's just in it. And the, the lighting of the eyes is a good indication of that moment expression, that moment man manifestation. And he... Um, he talks, uh, he was saying, you know, with any, any great works in history, Shakespeare, Beethoven, they're not automatic. You don't just, you know, you don't just uh, hear it for the first time, most of us, and um, completely understand it. You have to focus and pay attention on it, and we have to come up to it. It won't come to us. We have to raise ourselves up to that level through our heightened awareness through our attention. And then once we abide in that understanding, then its fruits are, are given to us. That's essentially Dharma practice. Dharma won't come to you. It won't come to me. It isn't something that you can walk through, most of us can walk through our normal and everyday living exper 
experience and expect it to enrich our life. We have to really focus, we have to bring ourselves up to what it is saying. We have to raise our consciousness up. We have to focus in. We have to really perceive and pay attention. And then we begin to spare the fruits of that. And this is certainly one aspect of Dharma that requires that kind of extreme subtlety of your attention. And the rewards are equally as extreme as the attention that you pay to it. It is not, but you see, we, we won't do that if we think or project into some word like selflessness this kind of uh, morose and um, uh, sort of morbid quality of being cut off and desert-like, and, which is not it. I would not speak about the qualities of this if I did not know the joys of this and invite all of us to come and partake on in that joy. We don't lose ourselves, we gain all beings. Now at the deepest level, as we begin to move even further down into this, and I love this, there's nothing. There are no things. There are no atoms, there are no souls, there are no particles, there's no self, there's no mind, there's no consciousness, there's no aggregates. That everything Everything is in a constant movement of flux and change and movement. Everything is only a momentary configuration. We've passed through the looking glass. And because I love the way physics captures that looking glass, I might have read this before, but I can never remember. This one says how physics is like the grin without a cat. So just get a feeling for this. Um, they're talking about having found these uh, more and more subtle particles. They keep breaking up the atom, and they find particles. And they break up the particles, and they find other particles. And they keep breaking those particles. And, and, the, and the more they break them down, the more they disappear. And, and they, they, don't, they can't find them. And <laughs> it's just it's like chasing. So anyway, these particles bring problems. These prob- these pr- Frequently, they don't actually exist. <laughs> this, is a, this is a physicist writing this thing. In the real world, they just aren't there. What we seek is what we get, and what, and what we, get only statistical, we get only statistical probabilities, not measured certainties. We're told, for example, that the top quark, that's a particle, was spotted as a remnant trace from two head-on proton collisions at close to the speed of light and that this quark probably hadn't existed as a separate entity since immediately after the Big Bang several billion years ago. Over the last seven decades, Max Planck, Max Planck and Erwin Schrodinger quantum mechanics have suggested that the most infinitesimal stuff in the universe can t- consists of discrete quantum of energy, waves, and particles, each a form of the other, each turning into the other, neither one being fixed and neither one being able to be described. Furthermore, you can't even see them. Furthermore, whether we see such quanta quanta as particles or as waves depends on what instruments we use. And each instrument that we use distorts the very experiment itself. Additional constraints limit our knowledge. In basic human thought process, language sets the boundaries, for we cannot progress beyond ideas for which we do not have words. Blah, blah, blah. So 
And anyway, in this wonderland of subatomic physics, things get curiouser and curiouser. <laughs> if history is any indicator, signs of still other waves and particles will, of course, be found. But since we and our instruments both have limited perception, and for part of the very system we are trying to measure, we will never be able to plumb the lowest levels. In fact, trying to fathom the vengeful urgings of his father's ghost, Hamlet said this all too well. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than we have dreamed of in our philosophies. See, I love that. I mean, 2,500 years ago, the Buddha was talking about this when physics was levers and pulleys, you know. It's, and now so they've, science has caught up with the essence of uh, spiritual insight. And uh, suddenly it's all saying the same thing. And so we don't have any other philosophies to turn to where we can say, okay, well, I'll bail out on this one. <laughs> right? I like that. It doesn't give us anywhere to move. But we're, we're not going to settle with that. I mean, most of us want to fight that. And um, I mean, we want something, some place to stand, someone to blame, some place that is home, something to trust, and something to hope, hope for. Maybe this relationship will do it, right? <coughs> Maybe my job. If it weren't for my parents, I would be. When I get this, then I'll be happy. See, when you put the four illusions onto every one of those things, when I get this, I'll be happy? What's that? You get this and you're, you enjoy a moment or two, and then what happens? It turns into something else, or you lose what you got. See, there's no, the ground is too damn shaky here. We're talking about 9.0 <laughs> Richter scale. <laughs> Maybe I'll find peace in meditation. That's good. That'll last for about, what, a minute or two? <laughs> Most of us can't find our breath to find peace. <laughs> no place, nothing. The search is in vain. No peace to stand on, no place. Nothing. And that's not despair. That is not despairing. And so we think, okay, let's work through this through relationship. All right? All right? If I'm not an entity in and of myself, and that there is constant things coming, codependently arising, then there must be some inherent connectedness to all of this? Where is it, where is it manifesting from? What's, at the, what's the foundation of all this movement? Movement itself means that things are being affected, that things are, are acting upon each other, that they are not impervious to the influence of other events, or there would be no change. And so we can then take this sense, we see we start where we are. Okay, I feel like a person. I don't care what he says, I feel like a person. Okay, let me, let me then go into relationship and see, uh, see where that is. So I'm sitting there with somebody I know, and I start seeing that really what I 
am is my reactions, my projections, my ideas about this other person or about myself in this situation. That, that entity, that sense of being separate from, is no more than something that I'm manufacturing moment after moment that gives me a sense of historical perspective or future movement with this other person. So I don't allow that to define the relationship. I say, okay, let me look deeper into this. And we can use the very meeting and contact itself to start bringing us more into that sense of connectedness, into that sense of what, the, what is... And the Buddha said, change is not the end. That's not the end in all and be all of Buddhism. He talked about something that was changeless. But it's not of this world. It's not of these, from these senses that we find that. I can't, everything of the mind, everything of the sensory quality of mind is in transition. So it's, that negates, in terms of the truth, all the things that I have placed my truth upon. But that doesn't mean there isn't a truth. That doesn't mean that there isn't something beyond all this, or through all of this, or part of all of this, that I'm just not seeing, that I'm just not perceiving. And so I can't count on relationship itself as that thing. I can't say, you know, I'll connect with you, and through that connection I'll be connected to all things, because we just, that's this mental connection, and that takes, that's labor intensive. I have to work at it, I have to keep coming back, I have to find out where you are, process it, you know, and there has to be something beyond all of that psychological stuff. And you know, if for those of you who have sat silently with other people on retreat, at the end of that retreat, there's often a sense of, of great connectedness, even though you have spent the entire time nonverbal. That there is something there, something that was parted in the silence that resonated through with connection. But we, our mind grabs that and wants to connect through the verbal, through the mind, through some way of talking or speech. And that's a way to keep reaffirming our identity, to keep reaffirming, reaffirming what silence itself takes away. Silence itself is in direct contrast to that identity project that we're all doing. And when we allow ourselves to touch that silence, we feel connected. That's the first indication that we're safe in this. That something, in fact, is there to unite us beyond what the mind's verbs and nouns can produce. You know, have you ever grown up with somebody and you've known them so well that there's just this kind of feeling of, and they can, I mean, I had a friend who I have known since I was three years old, and uh, he at one point went off and became a, a fighter pilot and then went into the FBI, and, and I did my thing. And you would think that there was no, what, those are two worlds, and yet there's a deep sense of abiding affection that does not come from the squabblings or alignments that we try to make in terms of words. There's no, it comes from something else. It comes from just resting or a quietness with each other. 
of having said it all, knowing it all, arguing all of that, and then coming to a sense of quietness. And that quietness has a commonality that only uh, often old friends can allow. There's the, you don't have to say anything. There's no reason for you to put forth your identity. Everything is known. And you can relax in that. And there's a deep sense of trusting. You see, I'm, what I'm doing is trying to give us indications that this is a safe journey. That this is not a journey. This is a journey in which we, um, we add a dimension. We don't lose a dimension. And in seeing life through this way is the very heart of connectedness itself. So the practice is to take us beyond rest stops and places and visitor centers. It's not to rest upon anything. It's no fixed point. It's no assurance. There are no guarantees. I can, at any time, I can cash in my chips. I've had enough of this change and pull out. <laughs> the wheel will keep spinning. It's just you have cashed in your chips. Or we can just keep going, just keep moving, free fall. And we're here to remind you, I'm here to remind you, that it's the free flaw, fall where the joy and the complete satisfaction and the complete contentment resides. Not in cashing the chips. Most of us will bid one chip and keep them. We're too protective of being who we are. Just throw the whole damn thing and bet on black. <laughs> Science is saying it to us. The Buddha is saying it to us. Who need, how much proof do we need? How much proof do we need now? We only need the proof of our own experience. So let's at least be willing to take that step to experience, to see whether the experience confirms what other people have been saying, what science is saying, what religions are saying. Let's take that step. Let's invite. That's putting one chip out. And you're saying maybe black and maybe red. But you just, just do that. And then, just let's see what happens. And so can we all sit for a minute or two?